0: to the second Trinity College Dublin Talks podcast. I'm Tom Alloy and my guest is Kevin Mitchell, who is Associate Professor of Genetics and Neuroscience at Trinity College Dublin. Kevin joined the Smurf Institute of Genetics and Institute for Neuroscience here in Trinity in 2002 and is also responsible for coordinating undergraduate teaching and for supervising admissions. He's a leader of the Wiring the Brain conference, which takes place every two years. He runs a blog. And he's a prodigious, I think the most prodigious, uh, Trinity Twitter uh, performer and well worth looking at both the blog and his account if you want to keep track of genetics, neuroscience and just developments in psychology. He's our guest here today for many reasons, but really because of the success of his book, Innate, How the Wiring of Our Brains Shapes Who We Are, which was recently published by Princeton University Press has been praised by psychologist Steven Pinker at Harvard as a new landmark in the debate about the influence of nature and nurture. It's interesting what Pinker says about a new landmark in the debate, because of course this is an ancient debate, really, isn't it, Kevin? I mean, it's been going on, I think, since, since the Stone Age, since parents looked at their children, and perhaps... Since Francis Galton talked about the debate between nature and nurture yes, yeah
1: absolutely Galton was was uh, a, a Victorian scientist and he was the first to coin that phrase, although I think he probably borrowed it from Shakespeare actually um, but of course it goes back to you know Aristotle and, and, and Plato and Socrates and there was uh, discussions among the Greek philosophers about what makes us all the way that we are um, and I think the the reason why, um, you know, why I felt th- it was a good time to revisit this, even though Pinker had written a, a very uh, good book on the subject called "The Blank Slate," and that came out, I think, in 2003. Um, and in that, he would already shown the evidence that many of our traits are partly genetic. That is, that, that people who resemble each other, or uh, people who are related to each other resemble each other more, both physically and psychologically. So the evidence for that is very, very strong. It's really consistent. one of the most consistent results in all of psychology, actually. But what we've learned in the intervening time is how that happens. What are these genetic variations? Where do they come from? What do they actually impact? In what way does our emergent psychology relate to these differences in a, a chemical molecule inside our cells? And the answer to that really is that those genetic variations affect the way our brains develop. They don't acutely determine the way our brain functions right now, you're not thinking with your proteins that those genes are making. They were really uh, involved in, in, in the program to make a human brain.
0: Okay, let's, let's kind of dismantle that a bit, because the first bit, I think, is intuitive to many people, isn't it? I think it's always struck me, people who grew up in the countryside, people who are close to farms, know that farmers breed, and, and they breed on the basis of yep. genetics. So. In a way, that's that's not so surprising, although the, the uh, what comes next is surprising. But yeah. the bit about the science bit, that's kind of new, isn't it? Is, is that because we can now look at the brain through scanning and imagery and so on, something we've only been able to do for, what, 20, 25 years? Yeah. Or, or does it come, how, how does the science work and why is it that we know about it now? Yes, yeah, so
1: there are a lot of
0: advances in neuroscience
1: that have let us ask some questions about which parts of the brain are related to things like neuroticism or extroversion or intelligence. And it turns out when people look at those things, there aren't particular parts of the brain that are related to those things. They're, they're actually very distributed. The brain is really not so modular. So, uh, and that, come, when you come back to the genetics, this, the answer is the same, really, in, in the sense that there aren't particular genes that are really controlling neural circuits that you think with or that you're sociable with or that you worry with they're all more or less involved in generally shaping the way our brains get wired and so let's
0: take one trait yes. sociability yes. kind of a positive well, depending on how you see life a positive trait generally yes. what so what makes you more sociable than me well it's a really interesting question so
1: what, what we see in people's behavior When when you say I'm more sociable, that's an observation that in any given circumstance, I tend to behave in a certain way that might be different to you, or I tend to seek out uh, those kinds of experiences and so on. I tend to go out to parties or whatever. I'm being hypothetical now. (laughs) Um, But but really, actually, that's a descriptor. That doesn't tell you anything about what's going on underneath. And really, under the hood, what we're talking about is differences in decision-making. I'm in a given scenario, so are you. We're making a decision. Okay. I assess the situation and think, what should I do now? What's my optimal behavioral choice? And When you think about it in that way, you can think about the parameters of decision-making that you would use even if you were, say, programming a robot to, to rove around in the world and assess a situation and so on. So um, humans have to have some... Uh, way to assess threats, to assess risks, to measure rewards, to measure punishments, to weight long-term goals versus short-term goals and so on. All of those things, there's particular circuits in, in the brain that do those things. Um, and they can be tuned differently in different people. So you might be more averse to risks than I am. And if that were true, that might manifest as you being less sociable. Because a, a social environment is a wide open one with with it's not very controlled or predictable and so on. So when you get into those the, the nuts and bolts, when you look under the hood at the parameters of decision making, tweaking them or tuning them up or down, can manifest as these
0: variations in in what we call the personality traits. But then we come back to this nature nurture question because you say they can be tuned. Yes, but you don't well, tell us how.
1: So what I so this this. Two ways, really. Mm. So, um, first of all, the the circuits that get set up are specified by some information in the human genome, generally. So, somewhere in a fertilized egg, there's information to make a human being with a human brain. But we don't all share exactly the same information. So, there's genetic variation between all of us, and that variation affects that program of brain development. So, the outcome is not the same, just as, just the same as our physical structure differs because of our genetic makeup. The physical structure of our brain differs. That affects how the brain functions and affects these um, personality traits and other aspects of our cognition and, and behavior because they're ultimately dependent on the physical nature of the machine that does the work. So we do come with innate differences between us. We have innate predispositions. We are more shy or cautious or reckless or impulsive or deliberate. Um, and so on and Partly that's due to these differences in the genetic program Partly it's due to the way the program plays out because even identical twins when you run the program twice as it were You don't get exactly the same outcome and the reason for that is that the program involves incredibly complex biochemical and developmental processes uh, that at a cellular level are subject to randomness and noise so the genome can encode in a sense, okay, I should make this many molecules of protein A or protein B in this cell, but you know once they're made, they just diffuse off into the cell and they're subject to all kinds of, of, of random effects. So the genome can't specify the full outcome. there's no way that it physically could. It specifies a sort of a range actually, and where you end up in that range differs between every Human be, being. Every human
0: being, exactly. Even ones that are genetically identical to each other. So let's come back to sociability and why you and I might be different. Yeah. As I understand it, what you're saying is it's partly genetic, it's partly there from before birth yes. as you're as you formed. Then presumably development has, has or, or the environment you grow up in has, if you grow up in a Trappist monastery, you're going to be slightly less sociable yeah. perhaps or, than somebody else. And, and maybe, you know, I can imagine that... Uh, a couple comes together who are kind of equally level, you know, social, and you grow up in a social household, or not so it's much. Sure. And then you're saying randomness is the third element here, the, the, yeah. the, the kind of the imponderable.
1: Yeah. So, so genetics and developmental variation together will sort of give you these the, these innate predispositions. They'll affect the tuning of those neural circuits, uh, and it may come down to how many how many neurons you have in that circuit or how they're connected, and so on. I mean, we don't really know actually at that level. Um, Although we can we can tweak them in animals very, very um, precisely actually and affect those kinds of behaviors. So the nurture aspect then is really interesting and one of the very surprising and striking and consistent results from behavioral genetics literature has been that the family environment that you grow up in does not make much of an effect or have much of an impact on those kinds of traits that psychologists measure as personality traits. It's a very surprising thing. If you look at at adoptive siblings, for example, who who share the same family environment that they grow up in, but they're not genetically related, they're no more similar to each other for these personality traits than any two random people would be. And conversely, if you take twins, identical twins who are reared apart, they're not much less similar than they would be than if they were reared together. So the, the shared family environment doesn't actually make much of a contribution to those traits. However, there's a big however here, mm. which is that our actual behavior at any given moment is only partly based on those underlying traits, and it's very much based on our experience over our lifetime in terms of our, how our habits emerge and how our character emerges, and so on. So you can say, you know, your personality trait can impact the probability of you behaving one way or another in any given situation. But we're never in any given situation. We're always in some particular situation. And our whole life is made up of one particular situation after another. So while it might be true that a shy person versus an outgoing person would behave differently in situation X, it's also the case that the shy person won't be in situation X as much as the the outgoing person and over their life they may have chosen not to be in those situations and those habits then get sort of more ingrained over time so there's an interplay between our individual natures the way that we're born and our experience over time and and people often think of nurture in a sense as uh, opposed to nature i mean that's the classic formulation nature mm. versus nurture but actually nurture can reinforce or amplify those initial differences. So a shy child who doesn't tend to go out and play with other kids, doesn't get good at playing with other kids, I mean, there's some skills there to to socializing. They don't get socialized as much as as the outgoing child, they sort of then, you know, it becomes less rewarding uh, to be out in a social um, situation and so on, so so you can get a kind of a, a, a virtuous or a vicious cycle that emerges through that interplay of nature and nurture
0: what does this mean for us uh, for parents you know and and does it mean really that, that, that the role of a parent is is almost redundant and I, I've often been struck you know as somebody who studied history that the the kind of the modus operandi of medieval aristocracy was you, you, you spent a huge amount of time thinking about who you'd marry for dynastic strategic reasons and then you sent your kid off somewhere else and had them raised by you know an aristocrat in a castle 50 miles away so yeah. they clearly bought into this view of life which is yes. all genes really it's and then the very beauty. little to do with uh, uh, and then there's probably a cultural overlay of yes. you know, chivalry and so on but you can learn that anyway. Sure. Is that what you're saying? Well I So the idea that our parenting doesn't
1: affect these underlying biological traits does not mean that parenting doesn't matter at all. There's tons of of aspects of people's character that psychologists don't routinely measure because they're quite idiosyncratic in in the way that they develop, but they're still really important. And and so you know just things about how you treat other people and and whether you have you know good manners uh, and. you know things like that. There, there are aspects of those that are partly genetic, but they're also partly dependent on family environment. They're just not the things that people think of as stable traits, and, and therefore measure as a an indicator of or an expla an an explanation of behavioral variation across a whole population, which is what psychologists are often interested in. So parenting matters for lots and lots of things, and of course it matters for your relationship with your children in particular, and. I guess for me, um, the, the upshot of realizing that people have these innate predispositions is actually accepting that. So looking at your children and understanding, well, this, this one reacts in this way, and this one reacts in that way, and that's not anything to do with the way that we're parenting them. Uh, they're just different. You know, we don't mold them as much as we think we do. We meet them. We go on meeting them over, over their lives as they continue to mature. And I think like any good you know, manager, or um, you know, even think about like a sports manager, they know that, that things that they use, tactics that they use uh, will work for one player but not for another player because they, they, their minds are different. Well, this and kind of
0: brings us on to, I suppose, what this all means for, for society as a whole. Because on the one hand, you could see it or you could be forgiven for seeing it as a, a recipe for despair, really, that people are just the way they are and, and you shouldn't blame yourself or, indeed, give yourself a pat on your back if your child grows up in one way or another. That's perhaps a negative way of looking at it. The, the positive way is the way you've just outlined, Kevin, which is that um, we need to be more tolerant of, of difference and, and, and just just see it. But c- can you just remind us, what, what what kind of character traits are we talking about? Because we're really talking about we talked about sociability up to now, yeah. but there are dark character traits as well that society puts people in jail for or executes people for. Yeah, and and you're also right. arguing that they're hered- they're not they're genetic. Yes, I mean um, you know aggression, impulsiveness,
1: um, psychopathy. So there's a so-called dark triad of of traits and things like narcissism and you know, manipulation and. Um, and so on. So there's a there's a bunch of personality traits that that are indeed partly genetic and partly and they may even be more innate than they are genetic. So, for example, so if aggression
0: is innate, yes, should is it right for a judge to sit there and put people in jail for being aggressive?
1: Well, it's a really interesting question. It gets back to a deep uh, sort of philosophical point of what is versus what ought to be, and not necessarily taking that what what is is what ought to be. Um, so we have civilized ourselves, we've self-domesticated over, over millennia, and um, you know, civilization and, and culture make some demands on us as far as being able to uh, you know, live and, and cooperate in, in society. So there are, there are pragmatic points to be made about how we deal with people who, um, who are aggressive, who, or even just transcend the rights of other people. That that we need to have in order to have a, a functioning society. Now, that being said, it's clearly important to ask about particular individual moral responsibility for someone's actions. So, for example, if someone acts aggressively because they have mental illness or because they have a brain tumor, then we, we do say they're not personally culpable. Mm, mm. At the same time, we may say they are nevertheless a danger to society and we need to treat them that way. So whether you know, there are certain genetic mutations that lead to very uh, severe violent tendencies. So a couple of families, uh, thankfully rare, um, who have this particular mutation that where multiple people in the family who've been arrested for arson, for uh, rape, for robbery, for assault, and many of them are, are in prison, and. I think it's a valid consideration, at least to think about, that they may not be as morally responsible for their behavior due to that the presence of that mutation. Now, that's a very discrete outcome, a very discrete uh, effect of one particular mutation. Whether you would take the same attitude to people who are just at the tail end, the extreme end of a, of a distribution, that's really an open question. But
0: but, but it's a question I, I, I expect is going to become more pressing as, as time yeah. goes on, as it becomes easier to do genetic tests. Absolutely. people start making these defences in court. They already are. Yeah. yeah, are they? Yeah. 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 They, and are they making them with success? Or?
1: Sometimes, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so genes
0: made me do it, Your Honour.
1: Well, so it's, it's, it's now my genes made me do it. Sometimes it's my brain made me do it, because yeah. you can put a brain scan in. Uh, but it, you know it's a variation on my environment made me do it. I had a terrible upbringing and I'm not responsible for my actions now as a, as a result of that. so it's a different it's a different twist. Now this one is more technical and as a result can bamboozle juries and maybe judges. Um, so there's, there's a danger there in explaining it. and actually one of the things that um, is, is d- difficult to skirt around here is the idea of genetic determinism. so genetic Differences do have a big effect on a lot of our traits, but they don't determine them. And even if you knew someone's genetic information completely, you wouldn't be able to predict their psychological traits with any degree of accuracy. And that's partly because there's this huge amount of developmental variability. that's just randomness that we'll never get around. It doesn't matter how good our genetic knowledge is, we'll never be able to predict with accuracy. That's a, that's a limit in principle, not just in practice. So in, this, in a sense, that's a, I, I, I take a comfort in that, actually, that our uniqueness is not down to our genetics and is therefore refractory to any degree of genetic prediction. Um, on the other hand, it won't stop people trying. Well, this is it. And,
0: yeah. and, and how far are we away from that? How far are we away from... Uh, a couple expecting a child to be able to screen for aggression and then make decisions accordingly, based probably on an imp- incomplete understanding of probability. Yeah, yeah.
1: we're not fa- we're not far away from that happening. It's all, that's already possible. It's very possible. Yeah. yeah, that's already possible. Certainly possible for things like intelligence. Yeah. And so there's a company recently called Genomic Prediction, which is using that sort of approach to predict the IQ of embryos, and what they say is that they'll use that to screen out embryos that are predicted to be at the clinically, uh, you know, intellectually disabled end of the spectrum. They're not saying they'll use it to screen positively yet, but I, I, that, that is actually the avowed uh, intention of one of the founders of the of the company, and if it can be done, and if it's in a, you know, a, a jurisdiction where it's legal to use that kind of information at all, then you know, it's going to happen. And there's a whole ton of ethical considerations around that that we have not yet grappled with at all. So the technology is racing ahead of both our ability to, to really understand it widely, um, but also to, to regulate it. And actually, even on a, I mean on a, on a lighter note, there's there's a load of companies that do this direct to consumer genomics. Um, there was one that's advertising to tell you what your taste in wine will be based <laughs> on your genetics. There's a soccer genomics one to tell you what your soccer skills are likely to be, what your fitness regime should be, what your diet should be. Um, there's a there's a skiing one, skiing and snowboarding. Um, so there's a there's a ton of of uh, of these genomics claims that are massively overhyped and people are happy to, to pay for them.
0: It's a, a sort of genetic astrology it sounds a bit like these kind of quizzes you do on the internet yeah absolutely. That you don't put much store by but can't no. help, can't and, help and, do and in
1: fact it's, it is like those because mm. those quizzes you see on the, the internet are usually designed to just get information from you yeah. And many of the genomics companies are it's the same you're the product. They're taking your DNA, and if you don't look at the fine print of what they're using it for, if you look at Ancestry.com or 23andMe.com, the fine print gives them a ton of reach-through rights uh, for your genetic information. So you're the product in,
0: in a lot of those cases. Well, that's a very good warning to to anybody who might be tempted to, to do something as a result of this concept. Tell me, the last question I have really, though, is the serious bit of what you were just saying, which is, uh, I suppose... You said the technology is racing ahead, and, and, and by extension the kind of the ethical, philosophical bit is still trying to catch up. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things I liked about your book, but, but also felt frankly uncomfortable about, was that you didn't shy away from talking about uh, genetics and, and gender, genetics and race, and all those kind of things, kind of controversial things that a lot of people who, who uh, talk about these things often get into trouble with, you know, there's yeah. a kind of mob mob reaction. The mob isn't really the right, the right kind of group to talk about, or, or legislate for genetics. But but nor I would think are geneticists. You know, it's, yeah. it's, we've got to find some some other way. But I, I don't know who, who 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 should. How can a twenty first century legislature control what's what's happening, what's possible? Yeah. And well, it's What a great do you think should? Should be the kind of just the parameters, the kind of yeah. the framework for that. I yeah. Think.
1: I mean, we're not starting from scratch in that uh, genomic testing uh, and, and prenatal screening already exist for lots and lots of conditions. Um, I mean, people will be very familiar with testing for Down syndrome, for example, and that varies in different, uh, different countries. And what p- the, the options that people have, uh, if they get that information, varies from country to country as well. So, in, in Europe, for example, it's very tightly regulated. Uh, in the UK, there's a, there's a very uh, precise list of genetic conditions that you can test for. Um, and now, that list gets expanded all the time, right? So, new ones are added. We, we find a new genetic disorder and we say we can add for that. Now, what's different these days is that, rather than testing for diseases 1, 2, 3, 4, up to 50, uh, in a very specific kind of a, uh, of a test, what we'll do is we'll just sequence your whole genome. And we'll find the information on genetic diseases 1 to 50, but we'll also find all kinds of other things. And it's the all kinds of other things that's the, the Pandora's box, because in that, the rest of that genetic information, I can derive a score that will be uh, correlated statistically with IQ. Even though it's not correlated very well, you know it's a, in a statistical sense you could use it if you wanted to if you had two embryos and one was predicted to have a higher IQ than the other you could choose that so there's there's tons of information there um and it, in in some places i mean the us it's it's the wild west actually there's very little regulation you can do what you want you can screen for what you want i mean sc- they screen for sex which is not actually allowed in in um, a lot of european countries for example so but but I, I mean, I agree with your assertion that the geneticists are not the ones who just should decide on what should be allowed. I mean, uh, and, and in some sense, they often say that themselves, mm, mm. Uh, and, and it, it can be a way to absolve themselves of any responsibility. They say, well, we just developed the technology. It's not our, not our uh, place to say what you use it for. That's for the ethicists. Um, there's, a, there's, some, there's some validity to that position. I don't buy it completely personally, but that's a personal opinion, not a scientific one. Um, but the, so, so, so the question: Who should decide? Well, there are people who do decide. There are committees and 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 so on. Um, they're more they're more active in some jurisdictions than others. And the concern always will be that you'll have things like what happened in in China recently, where well, even even there, it was a rogue. Scientist, it wasn't that he had permission from the Chinese government to do it, he had no permission from anyone to edit the genomes of, of actually. And what, what multiple happened there? So I, didn't, I didn't see
0: that story. What,
1: so, what he did was he, there's a, a new technology called genome editing using a tool called CRISPR, which is astonishingly efficient. It's been developed over the last few years, and you can, you can change the, the genome of, uh, say, a fertilized embryo. And people are doing this in, in mice and, and, and so on, um, but you can. There's nothing theoretical, you know, to say that it won't work in humans. It does. It works in human cells. No one had done it in an embryo and actually implanted it, but this guy did, two two embryos, and they um, actually were born. So there are first gen- genetically edited or engineered humans have already been born. Now, he faced complete uh, outrage, and, and I think he's under, he's, going to, he's under arrest or he's going to be charged um, for, for a, a criminal offense there. But the, the, the thing is, the, yeah, these things will happen. Once it's possible, they'll happen, and that's actually a, a really easy technology to use. Now, partly as a result of that, uh, a group of scientists have come together to propose a moratorium on any human genome manipulation. Um, and that mirrors something that happened in the 1970s, when molecular biology first happened. And we were able, suddenly, to take a piece of DNA from one organism and put it into another one, usually into bacteria, so we could grow up lots of the DNA and analyze it. Um, and there was, a, there was a voluntary moratorium for a period of time until people realized, OK, what are we dealing with here? Is it safe? Can we manage it? And so on. Uh, and eventually, the, it did turn out to be very safe. This situation is different. Editing the human genome and edi- thereby editing the human germ pool, uh, gene pool, uh, is a much bigger ethical concern. And so, yeah, it bears discussion, and we haven't really uh, had those discussions yet. Things are just happening, and we're going to be playing catch up if, we, if we're not careful.
0: Well, on that rather disturbing note, <laughs> I think uh, we'll call it a day. Okay. Thank you very much, Kevin. It's Kevin my Mitchell. Pleasure. Thanks. Thanks.